You're listening to Boston Strongcast, a place where we talk all things powerlifting, strength, and the occasional scientific nerd session. I'm your host, Kevin Can, the owner of Precision Powerlifting Systems, strength coach and competitive powerlifter in the USAPL. Thanks for tuning in, and let's get stronger together. Hey guys, this is Kevin Can with Boston Strongcast. I'm joined by... Actually, you know what? I hope you have your pocket protectors shine for this one, because I'm joined by... They're probably the two biggest nerds that I follow on uh, Instagram, and I mean that with the uh, utmost respect. I'm joined by the data-driven strength guys. Uh, we have Zach Robinson and Josh Pellin. Did I say that right? Yes, sir. Oh, nice. Um, so if you guys, uh, I don't care which ones. And basically, this is a test to see who controls the power dynamic of this relationship is who introduces them to us first. Yeah, so I'll, I'll kick I'll kick <laughs> off the podcast. <laughs> I'll kick off the podcast here. Um, our introductions will be pretty similar. We're both uh, master's students uh, in the uh, muscle physiology laboratory at Florida Atlantic University, and, and co-owners of uh, a company called Data Driven Strength. And, and like Kevin said, just big nerds that like to nerd out about this stuff. So we're looking forward to this conversation today and, and discussing some of our recent stuff. Yeah, not to not to repeat too much of the, after the ladies have spoke first. Uh, you know, we can uh, have very similar, as Josh mentioned, very similar uh, backgrounds, master students currently. Uh, but yeah, that it's uh, just really excited to talk about the article and see kind of uh, Kevin and I have discussed a lot of these ideas via DM and uh, maybe have two kind of different perspectives how we came to similar conclusions. So I'm just uh, really interested to dig into those kind of uh, topics and see what can come out. That's uh. Like when I was reading that article, that's the, so the title, right? So the title of this article uh, is Rethinking Proximity to Failure for Strength Gains. So of course, like as a powerlifting coach, we take a lot of singles, like near failure. I was like, oh, this piqued my interest. Um, and it was a very, very well-written article. And so I read it and like, I'm reading down. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I get to the conclusion. I'm like, this is literally what we fucking do in the gym. Got you guys on to looking into this topic in general, because you guys do a lot of like velocity based training and stuff like that. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't care who goes first. Oh yeah. We'll let yes. you go first this time. Yeah, so I think uh, kind of the the original topic that kind of piqued our interest on, you know, I think Josh and I both have an interest in, you know, we a lot of the training discussion is on the primary training variables, you know, intensity, volume, frequency, and the industry at this point, I think, is just regurgitating the same stuff and, and that that is useful to a certain extent, depending on the audience. But we, you know, we like to try to find new questions that are less explored. And uh, proximity to failure is, is first of all, not often mentioned as a, as a training variable within itself. Um, and so, you, you know, we started to kind of dig into that question for hypertrophy uh, originally. Um, and, and one of the things we kept noticing was that when we were first, you know, kind of looking at this question is like, how close do you need to train to failure to optimize muscle growth? we noticed as kind of a pretty consistent trend for strength, it was not what we would have expected. Um, for strength, it was, you know, again, like kind of how we started in the article, you would think that a one RM is by definition one, like a 10 RP or maximal effort. So your most of your sets to be specific to that should be, you know, close to that RPE range. 
And what we found in, in kind of looking at the, the most of the research is that that didn't seem to hold true. Um, and so after kind of our hypertrophy, um, you know, kind of uh, data, you know, organization and everything was over, we started looking at this more specifically for strength. And then there was a huge, uh, you know, couple months of paper after paper looking at this kind of concept that um, a lot of them, like you mentioned, Kevin, looked at velocity loss as a, as a proxy. So we know that RPE in general, especially for the type of people that are in research, is going to be a pretty terrible metric to actually gauge proximity to failure, especially far from failure. Um, so it's it's essentially not usable as, a, as an accurate measurement of how far the set actually was completed from failure. So one of the advantages of using velocity is it's somewhat objective. Now there still is a ton of issues practically with using velocity loss and kind of interpreting exactly what that means in terms of proximity to failure. But the overall trend was pretty consistent in the fact that we started to see, um, you know, if you think about it from the you know the classic uh, high school physics equation force equals mass time acceleration um, if you just think about it force production where you would think from the standard force velocity curve a slower rep is going to be higher force that we thought about it more and more and we started to realize that you know within a set that that relationship doesn't exactly hold true and, and it's kind of flipped on its head whereas the 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 reps early in the set probably are the ones that are producing the most force. And that kind of started to build this model that made sense of the research findings that you don't need to train as close to failure for strength. Now, the one caveat there is that it's in the short to moderate term. That's something we've not only experienced in the research, but also um, in our personal experience, it seems to be kind of uh, something we've noticed uh, quite a bit with our clients and ourselves, that it seems to be the kind of a short to moderate term phenomenon that we see training in the way we kind of recommend in the article. But, um, you know, we were still having discussions on that why that could be all different kind of uh different limitations but yeah that's kind of the general gist of how we got there and in some of the main findings josh i don't have anything to add on that no i think that's a uh, i'll let kevin respond in a second because i think that's a, a pretty good description of the angle at which we came at this topic but i just want to uh, emphasize or, or perhaps clarify that the model that we um we laid out in that article um, like Zach alluded to about the repetitions early in a set being the most specific for a one RM at a given load. Um, we're, we're pretty confident. We think that has, we, we think that we think it makes a lot of sense, but we just want to, I just want to clarify that that is uh, a means to the end result of the longitudinal, uh, data we saw in the, in the literature. Um, you know, uh, we can, we can get into it a little bit here, but ju just essentially, um, group, uh, if you have two groups both training with the same percentage of their one RM, one of them doing um, many more repetitions per set and one doing many less repetitions per set, with sets equated, you see um, equal or potentially better uh, strength gains uh, in the short to moderate term in the groups doing less repetitions per set. So again, I, I just want to emphasize that it, uh, our model is a means to an end of explaining that. Um, and we're, we're constantly looking for uh, any flaws to be poked in that logic. So I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that, uh, Kevin. So my when I first got into powerlifting, so I was coached by Boris Shaco for three years. And what you guys just laid out was exactly what his programs look like, mm -hmm. right? So you would have... So his big, his big philosophy was that techniques first, right? So you get the principle of dynamic organization that the body is going to always search for some more efficient way to complete a movement, but you need so many repetitions to find that way and a little bit of guidance to find that way. 
So about 60% of our program was variations. Um, but average intensity, including every repetition from 50% and higher, was around 70, plus or minus 2%. And he has like all these little heuristics with like number of lifts and all that based off of uh, lifter classification. So it's just basically data that he's collected over time. So an example of this uh, would be, let's say we're training in the 80% range and we're even just doing a comp squat, right? I might do four doubles or five triples or somewhere in between, but he never would have me go 80% for more than four reps. And his reasoning for that was, is because you actually see technique fall off after that rep range. Um, and his whole philosophy on technique, which I think I deviate from this just a little bit, but was he wanted every repetition to look the exact same in training. So if you did 80% for a set of five and you had five different looking repetitions, you basically theoretically trained five different movement patterns. So you're not really developing the efficiency that he's, that he was looking for. Um, what's interesting about it was, is it's a higher frequency program. So like you squat one day, deadlift the next, and you bench basically every day of the week, uh, three to four days. It's, it's very Russian in that there's not a lot of a set like bodybuilding accessories seem to be much more of an Americanized piece of programming for powerlifting. There wasn't a lot of that. So I would have my comp lifts and then maybe a couple muscles I would target, but maybe like good morning, seated, good mornings, leg press, something like that. But it was a lot of volume in the competition lifts themselves, but my ability to recover in my now, I mean, you got to take this with a grain of salt because I think the first three years you just see, continuous progress no matter what. Um, but I saw continuous progress. I stayed relatively healthy, like minus some like little nagging elbow pains here and there. But I was able to come in and train every single day and never feel too beat up. Now, he was very good at like manipulating. So everything was done on like a day-to-day -day basis. So I might have a higher stress day. And this is all based off of number of lifts and average intensity. So a higher stress workload would be a certain number of lifts above my median. And then a medium stress day would be about median. And then low stress day would be for recovery would be well below. Um, so this was intermingling, but it did. And you guys kind of alluded to this in the article that it allows you, I forget which percentage, I think you said 60 to 85%, that it allows you to just train more and get more exposures and stuff, um, more repetitions in training. And that's that was basically his whole, we very rarely got near maximum, but I will say, um, and I think this is an important concept is they competed four to six times a year when they were coached by him. So they weren't necessarily looking for PRs. They would look to put their best performances on the platform one to two times a year, but they were competing four to six times. So typically a peaking, a peaking cycle with Shaco would be much more competition, less, less variation, but you would see maybe 90% uh, four weeks out or so. And then there'd be a, a short half week taper. And then you would test your lips. So, when he did the test, it wasn't going to a max. He would kind of tell me about weight to put on the bar. So it might be 102 and a half percent or 105 percent or, you know, it's a basically just based off of how he viewed training. Um, and then you would have your, so this is 17 to 21 days out. Now you're doing the test and then you'd have a gradual taper and then the competition. So 90% work during a comp cycle with him, you're, you know, three out of five weeks, you're going near to full maximum with one and a half, two lighter weeks in the middle, depending on the level of the lifter. Um, 
So when you look at it from a larger calendar year, it still fits into like the conclusion that you guys drew where you were talking some, you know, heavier work at greater than 85% and then a ton of volume at lighter weights far from failure. From a macroscopic view, that's literally what his program was like. And I found, I don't know, it got my wheels turning because you guys said uh, the short to uh, moderate term for those studies. Um, but I was just trying to think of like, I was like, oh my God, this sounds just like his programs. And when you step back, there's more to it than that. It's just, it's clusters of each. Um, and I kind of use some of that same idea of like clusters. Cause one of the things, so, you know, when you're young in your coaching career and you're just like, you know what, fuck this. I know more than everybody that came before me. We're just going to do whatever I say. Yep. So we, uh, and I'm happy I did. Cause I, I learned and I, uh, <laughs> regretfully, I'm sure some of my lifters, uh, who are still with me, but they, um, they would come into the gym. I kept it just very simple. So we just ran like linear periodization with us fives down to ones, or maybe even fours to ones, like four to six week blocks. And they would come in and hit one to two heavy sets, RP nine, nine and a half. And each week I kind of would give them weights based off of the previous week's performance. The interesting thing that I found, like, dude, in the beginning, you can go back to some of my posts. I'm like, fatigue's bullshit. There's no way this exists. These guys are fucking killing it in the gym. Nobody, but fast forward six months, I was like, oh shit, we got to really pull back on this a little bit. So like fatigue wasn't something that necessarily like from training at those higher intensities happened right away. And what was interesting, it was, it was gradual with the team and the ones who lifted higher absolute weights definitely experienced that fatigue first. Now, mind you, they tended to be bigger. They tended to be males. Um, but that did happen first, but there were some, like they lasted like six months before being beat up. And I know, um, in the Russian text and stuff, they had like these shock micro cycles that they would do where it'd be like a week or two where they would just almost double your volume. Um, and then the recovery would be about the same, but I just found it interesting from a macroscopic view that Chaco's programs are very similar to what you guys were talking about. Maybe, uh, you guys can comment on, uh, his programs in terms of what you guys found. Yeah, no, I think that, I mean, that was when we kind of started writing things, that was something I came back to multiple times. Um, it, it kind of started to shape out like that. I think, I, I guess from my understanding, Kevin, you, you, you were saying that they only touch weights, you know, above 85% pretty regularly, like four weeks out and in. I think that's probably the biggest the biggest change I would make to a Shaco system from the people that I've talked to that have, have, have run that. Um, it, it, they just a lot, a lot of times have the anecdote that they feel pretty unpracticed. And so I think, I think a lot of the benefits that come from training in a lower fatigue style that, that we've observed and we kind of, and we kind of wrote about, I think if you are completely unpracticed from both a psychological and physiological perspective at weights close to one RM, it's going to be difficult to kind of put all those benefits into play on game day. So I think that's, that's probably the biggest change to like a stock shake system from what I understand of it. Um, is, is that I would make is having those, you know, those heavy exposures almost all the time, I think is, is, is kind of what we advocate for. You know, you can have periods where it's, you know, it's a lower stress, maybe like a single out of five RP is something we do. Um, but you know, when it's, when it's closer to competition, you're probably going to want to get that, you know, as close to the one RM um, velocity is probably the primary thing that you're looking for. There is, is a relevantly 
slow repetition that you're not going to get from the, the lower fatigue volume work. And you want that velocity to slow down from load rather than intraset fatigue, which is the biggest, the biggest thing that I think um, just takes a second to get the wheels turning to understand what the difference there is. Like if you take 85% and you take that for as many reps as it takes to get it to a nine RPE, that the cause of that slow velocity is different than when it's elicited by load. And that's, that's a pretty, pretty big thing to understand because not only will that, you know, affect the next set that is going to decrease the force production of that next set. That's also going to eat into your recovery cost for next session. And so if you're coming back to hit another heavy single, that next, that next session, that's also probably going to be affected a little bit. And so now your peak intensity throughout the week is a little bit, um, you know, uh, detrimented and that's something we think is really important for strength in the short to moderate term is maximizing those exposures at a at a peak intensity so i think that that's probably the one thing from the shaco system i would probably it probably modify um but yeah that that it's it's very similar recommendations and like you said we're not not reinventing the wheel and hopefully it doesn't come across that way because you know a lot of people have come to these very similar conclusions it's maybe just slightly from a different reasoning is is kind of why we're getting back to this point but josh i don't have anything to add there yeah um i definitely want to echo that we're not reinventing the wheel maybe we're we're just uh articulating a reason that uh uh resonates with some of people in our little our little niche that's and and you know maybe we got a little group thing going on there uh or not but um to kind of expand on what zach was saying i think um and uh kevin your article the dichotomies of training intensity uh, i enjoyed that and i think that 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 was really relevant to the way that we program as well is like i think you get that peak intensity exposure so however however you choose to do that and, and you touch that and you, you, uh, you practice and experience the movement variability, uh, in, in the, in the skill acquisition necessary for, uh, a low repetition, a low velocity repetition that is low velocity because of the load. Right. And then you drop it down to whatever it may be somewhere in the 65 to 85% range. And yes, you could, uh, you could achieve a low velocity repetition, but that is due to the intercept fatigue, not by the load. So that is a, a different stimulus in and of itself. Thus it's less specific to the one RM. Um, and also by, by grinding through and, and the, the metabolic fatigue from, uh, the intercept fatigue of those higher PE sets, um, in practice. And, and I think the research would, would, um, align with this. You kind of get exponential fatigue as, as you approach failure. And because I think all three of us on this call, um, would agree that peak intensity is, is an extremely important variable to keep high throughout the year. Um, that's just eating into your ability to expose yourself to peak intensity. Uh, the next time you expose yourself to that lift. Yeah, that's, um, so I, I just want to circle back to what Zach was saying first. Uh, I have a few things written down here. So Zach, I literally went, so, you know, I was of the, um, the mindset you always mimic those that have done well you try to understand why they're doing what they're doing and then eventually you can kind of add your own spin to things so when i was running more of a shako program that was one of the things so we get to that test 17 to 21 days out and i had multiple lifters that would come up to me and tell me that they were having anxiety about a test like like legit like couldn't sleep at night like it was ruining their lives and like for me 
you know, I played sports my whole life. I, I did the MMA thing for 10 years. And like, so the anxiety of heavy weights was just nothing I'd ever experienced. So this was something that I was learning through them was that they were just scared of weights. And I, you could just see their demeanor change once a certain weight got on the bar. So I have one of my first lifters was, her name's Carrie Sachs. She's competed at the Arnold. She's squatted over 300 pounds of 52 uh, kilograms. But in the beginning, she was scared of two plates. Like you would get those 245s on that bar and she would wrap her wrist like a fucking maniac and like stomp around the gym and then miss a rep or be three inches high. And it's like, what are you doing? You literally just took 10, 15 pounds less and it was no problem. You know, and like the only way in my mind that made sense to fix that was she just, she needed to just be thrown in the fire a little bit and like figure that stuff out. So like earlier on, I understood the importance of intensity and then, you know, I added more intensity and everybody's getting stronger and I'm like, Ooh, intensity is all that matters. Mm -hmm. Like we got to be closer to failure, closer to failure. And what was interesting, and you mentioned, you both actually mentioned this where the load should slow down because of the weight. I've never thought of that statement before, but when I was doing more of a linear thing myself, and I would see this with some of my lifters, I would hit like a five rep PR, four rep PR, three rep PR, fuck doubles were top. And then I'm singling around what I tripled. Like there was this for me after triples, there was just this, this almost like this switch that it's just like, I couldn't control the weight. So my technique was breaking down a little bit more. So obviously like the absolute loads and the ability to control the absolute loads, um, I wasn't as well practiced, I think. And I think a lot of that wasn't necessarily the linear program. It was my background of just doing a lot more lighter stuff. Um, Cause it's probably something that would have taken a while to build up, but I just, I would just hit this wall and like, I was like, Oh, I must be fatigued. I must be fatigued. But now I'm curious if, it has to do more with the absolute load on the bar and that like, you know, having an MMA background, I'm probably good in that three to five rep range because that's what I've trained basically those, those hard bursts for 10, 15 seconds with short recoveries. And like, it's, you know, when you jump, it's not necessarily the same, like the velocity of it, right. It's very different from having to strain under heavier loads. So it's just probably something that I never really kind of trained but I find that interesting and um, maybe you guys could kind of touch on why something like that might happen. Like, you know, five rep PR, four rep PR, but then the fizzling at the end. And I think you guys kind of touched upon it a little bit when you were talking, but maybe something more specific. Yeah, I think uh, that that experience, what you just mentioned, I think is, is something that even in the broader context of just programs in general, um, you know, you get that initial start to the program that's probably going to be pretty conservative. You get, you know, whether it's based off a of training max or, or whatever it is. So you're starting pretty far from failure. And usually these these programs are going to be relatively in the short to moderate term like we talked about. Um, and, you know, maybe most people doing training are probably, you know, if you come in from a similar background to me and, and you know, at the senior year of high school, I'm doing literally every single exercise in the gym, three sets to failure on everything. Like, so just boatloads of fatigue. Um, and then you come into something a little bit more structured that's maybe a little bit more intelligently programmed. Again, you start the program really, really conservatively. So you're training in these relatively um, low fatigue 
sets early on, you get that kind of momentum going, you get into, I don't know, week four or five of the program in which it starts to in- intensify. And, and not only are you getting the accumulated fatigue, but in general, again, the concept of, you know, t- as the weights get heavier, trying to compensate that from training farther from failure isn't something that usually is occurring. So as your weights are getting heavier, you're also training closer to failure, plus you're getting the accumulated fatigue. And then in general, that that seems to make sense to me while you maybe kind of get that slowdown uh, near the end. And then the other thing I, I think too, and, and Josh, I think I have a slightly different perspective on this. I'm, I have had terrible experiences with detraining. Um, so if you take any type of linear periodization program that's pretty typical it's going to cut quite a bit of your volume um, near the end and I think maintaining a good amount of that is probably a lower risk strategy in most cases Um, I kind of view it as you know you're taking away the work that got you to the point of strength that you're at so you know stripping a certain amount of that away is probably going to be a good idea so that you can, you know, taper a little bit and, and remove any excess fatigue, but taking away a ton of it to me, just, it seems pretty high risk. Like some people can report really good tapers off that and have pretty good results. But in general, I find that to be fairly risky. So you kind of combine all those things together. The fact that you're probably progressively training closer to failure and the addition to accumulated fatigue, and then, um, you know, you, you maybe are cutting volume in addition with that. It seems kind of like a recipe for disaster in some cases to kind of lose the training effect that you were building earlier on in the program. So that's, that would be my perspective on it, Josh. I don't know if you got anything on that. Yeah, I, I'd say that's probably the biggest, the biggest thing we change in terms of uh, a more or less traditional periodization structure and by traditional i mean uh you know what's the modern modern periodization modern quote-unquote evidence-based periodization that you see a lot of people use is is exactly what zach said is that 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 average rpe decreases over time to avoid that phenomenon i think you were describing kevin yeah no that makes a lot of sense and like i always had that in the back of my mind when i was doing it with my lifter so I wouldn't, so if the squats were hitting singles, the deadlifts typically would be higher volumes and there were multiple bench days. So one would be like lower reps, one would be higher to try to maintain uh, a little bit of that volume without like a, a large fall off. And it, it did, it worked fine and basically until it didn't. And, you know, part of that, you know, and then another interesting part too is like just like the increased frustration when like, you know, you start... I think it just, it also led to this like focus of external outcomes where I have to hit a five rep PR to then hit a four rep PR to, you know, all the way down to one. So I think, you know, in a weird way, it added more psychological stress than singles. Like what I have found with singles is like people just, we get into powerlifting because we want to take every single, they just enjoy them. Um, You know, and even with the singles, it, you know, don't get me wrong. There are some people who, I guess, psychologically struggle a little bit more to handle those than others. And like, we have heuristics that deal with that. But um, to me, it just doesn't seem to have even like the same negative, negative psychological effect, just because like to get amped up to hit one single, it is the sport. And I think people are just more able to kind of handle that. Um dude a fucking almost five rep max set of anything sucks <laughs> like to get geared up to do that is just it's like it's a different mindset um so 
I had kind of learned the hard way that, all right, we got to do more singles. But one of the things that like, I don't like about like a West side program is they don't deadlift enough. Right. So when you look at like multiply lifting, their bench and their squat tend to build their total. Like a lot of those guys don't necessarily pull a ton of weight. Like, you know, I have 700 pound deadlifters that weigh under 200 pounds. Like that's a big part of their total. And that's not something that I would ever want to like, just not pay attention to. And you read a lot of studies that talk about like bench frequency, bench frequency, like that most people respond better to it. And it's like, it's a, you know, I'm coming from a shakeo background is a really hard thing for me to like, almost like part ways of it. And like, this is going to sound like a, a stupid explanation for it, but I was like, you know what? Squat the deadlift to two thirds of the freaking competition. We're going to spend two thirds of our time squatting and deadlift. Um, and ironically, like all three just kind of like build each other up and stuff. So in the beginning, I was doing singles, but not a ton of back down work. So like our volume, I wish I could remember when I first started putting the singles. Oh, you know what I did? I did one day would have singles. The other day would just be like rep work, but I wouldn't, it'd be very low volume on the single day. Kind of like very like West Side-esque where, you know, we might do like accessories and stuff after. But at the same time, like we use a lot of variations and like putting people into positions where they're kind of awkward and they punish where they want to go a little bit. So if somebody's pitching forward in a squat, I might put them in like a high bar wide stance position. We may use like accommodating resistance. It's awkward and you really don't get to figure it out. Right. So if you read like, you know, bonder chuck, like you need enough exposures to a certain variation in order for that variation to work too many. And obviously you get like diminishing returns there. So eventually what I ended up doing is I put the single up top and then we would do like the same variation, but just drop way the fuck down. Like I'm talking like 50, 60% um, of that max effort single. So let's say you take a high bar wide stand squat and you hit 500 pounds. You would literally take 300 pounds maybe, you know, and do, and I vary it. So I do think there's a benefit to having higher rep sets to build up conditioning, right? So if we're taking a lot of heavier singles, they need to have the work capacity and the recovery ability to be able to recover from the higher loads. So I do think there's some benefit to having some of those higher reps in there. So we'll do the, you know, three to six weeks of like higher rep stuff, but a lot of times, and especially if I start to see their RPEs creeping up. So let's say we take 50% for three by eight after a max effort lift, right? I'm trying to like build up that work capacity. The following week I might do 12 by two. So like, but I'll put a, uh, you know, every 45 seconds, take a set, every 30 seconds, take a set. So like, I want to build up that fatigue and that conditioning, but that 12 by two, I don't care how much time limit I put on it is much easier to recover from than a set of eight. So it's like, it's one of those as a coach is the recovery cost I'm going to put forth here of value to me. And is it okay if it affects training later on? So we do like a an upper lower split for the most part, but it gets higher frequency towards the end of the week. So if I know that they're deadlifting heavier in the week and I want them to be a little bit more fresh, I might do a 12 by two as a back down there. It's very easy to recover from. We don't do a ton of like bodybuilding stuff. Um, but I mean, you're talking doubles at 50%, even after a max single is like RP negligible. 
Like you're basically just moving around, feeling the exercise from a psychological perspective too. If your max effort didn't go well, it gives you a small win to end on, right? So like no matter what, you work on a technique thing, you can find that small win and get that psychological win. Um, but we'll literally day one, sometimes squat max effort, day two, we'll bench max effort and have similar back downs. I don't typically do the back downs on the deadlift, but it rotates every week. So we might do a max effort this week and then 80% for four doubles the following week. And we're constantly using the percent off of the previous max effort so that it's a little bit more accurate. But like, I'll dictate those rep ranges just based off of the RPEs that uh, they're giving me. So if somebody's RPEs are creeping up, we'll do more sets, less reps, or I'll just cut the volume in half, give them a rest day. Like that stuff um, happens too. I would like to hear how you guys, um, cause you guys don't use as much variation as me. So it's a little bit different. I'm curious how you guys kind of set up your heavier single work and then follow it up with, uh, the back downs and stuff. Yeah. I think what you were saying about, uh, the variations is interesting. And, uh, I think it's like, like we, like Zach and I were talking about how it's important to have exposures to those low velocity repetitions that are constrained by the load. I'm not sure that absolute load matters so much, but instead the percentage of the one RM for that given variation. Right. So, um, and Kevin, I'm not sure your stance on this exactly, but, uh, if you take the stance that there's something, uh, to some degree inherently fatiguing about, uh, absolute load itself, which is probably a discussion for another time, you can get away with practicing those low velocity repetitions, uh, that are constrained by load with a close variation. Um, and, and I think that can be a big win. So something Zach and I've been doing recently and with a lot of our lifters is, uh, have, we can, you can get away with having uh, a second high intensity exposure uh, per week with a, uh, a load limiting variation, if that makes sense. And then uh, to accumulate the work to achieve, whether it's the conditioning you were talking about, uh, Kevin, or it's um, just the psychological benefits you also mentioned, or whether it's just practice with the movement itself, um, I think in a perfect world, you probably be you would probably be doing singles with a pretty heavy load if if the goal is force production. Um, but if 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 you do think there's something to doing multiple repetitions, whether it's to uh, accrue muscle mass or to uh, just get more practice with the movement itself, that becomes impractical to be doing 25 singles. Um, so at that point, you're going to have to do more repetitions per set, but like we said, we don't want to be, you know, creeping up towards those high RPEs or at least high intercept fatigue. And it, it becomes impractical to accumulate the necessary repetitions with loads that are that heavy. Um, so thus, thus we find ourselves having to drop the load a little bit and then falling in that, you know, kind of 65 to 80% range and doing, uh, some of the low fatigue protocols, uh, prioritizing those repetitions far from failure, um, but you can still get plenty of repetitions in those sets, um, to, 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 uh, accumulate some of those adaptations I mentioned without the, the decremental effects limiting peak intensity for your following heavy exposure, um, by avoiding intercept fatigue and, and approaching failure. So Zach, Zach, I don't know if you want to elaborate on, on how we might set up some of those protocols or, or if you want to clarify any of that. 
Yeah, I think uh, Josh did a good job outlining it. I think just kind of like filling in what we do and kind of the spots that that you have, Kevin. Um, instead of like a max effort day, I think we we probably try to make that just slightly more so maximal. This is definitely an idea I'm, I'm playing with though, like for myself. But I would want to try it on myself before I do anybody else. I, I like in theory, like Josh said, a, a you know, a high load single is the most specific rep from a force production standpoint you're going to get. Um, so we want to have as many of those throughout the week as possible. So like Josh said, maybe we'll include some load limiting variants that not only limit the external loading, but also from a psychological perspective, doesn't allow the athlete to, you know, compare performance within a week. Cause sometimes that's not super helpful. If I hit comp bench singles four days in a row and day three is worse than day one, you know, some people get bummed out about that. And then sometimes that's not super useful. So I think that's one reason to in include that on a variant potentially. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, th that can be organized in a ton of different ways, depending on how you want to do it. Um, but the kind of the general heuristic is we want it above 85% or so, um, whether that's a triple, whether that's a double, whether it's a single, whatever the RP is, you know, kind of depending where you're at, how that individual responds to whatever RP is on the paper. Like, you know, you can get somebody that, you know, they say a single out of nine RPE and that means one thing to person A and that means something else to person B. And just like you said, you know, some people are going to get super worked up about seeing that, have a ton of performance anxiety. And then depending on the situation, maybe we want to push into that. Maybe we want to, you know, alter things a little bit to make sure that's not a total overreaction. So that's one thing to take into account. And then, you know, Josh did a pretty good job outlining what we do for the volume work, but, you know, kind of depending where we're at and kind of our grander, plan or periodization scheme, whatever you want to call it, that, um, that volume work is, is just going to be like Josh said, between 60 and 85%. And the goal there is just to, uh, achieve repetitions and essentially as many sets as is logistically feasible to get that, to get that, um, work in. So like Josh said, in the perfect world, potentially, you know, we're taking singles, 25 of them at a, at a given load. Um, but, you know, you start getting, you know, time limitations. Um, people hate training that way. One, one thing with, especially in squatting, you have to consider how many unracks that is. So that's a fatiguing aspect of it within itself. That's another variable you kind of have to consider. But um, the, the main thing is that uh, the volume work is, um, I lost my train of thought here a little bit. It's going to come back. It's going to come back. Oh, um, yeah. So I think the last thing, the last thing to talk about, my bad, uh, is that, you know, you could read the article and kind of get the sense that it's a one size fits all prescription, kind of what we're talking about. And I mean, Kevin, I, I think you work with a ton of people, so I'm sure you're just as familiar with this as us. You know, some people just for whatever reason can't tolerate you know, more than two sets over 80%. So even if it's theoretically optimal to have eight sets of two at 80% for whatever we're trying to do, you know, that maybe just isn't logistically feasible for some people so that their low, low fatigue protocol maybe is fives at 70% or whatever the, whatever the kind of the goal is. But if we, if we believe that the low fatigue protocols are going to be optimal for strength in the, in the short to ter short to moderate term for most people, um, you can kind of play with how, how exactly you arrange that depending on the person and, um, you know, all those logistical factors we talked about. So, yeah, I think, uh, that's kind of the general outline, you know, there's obviously a lot of variability within that, but I think, uh, that's, that's a pretty good example of how we kind of do it. I, um, so just for like the people listening who aren't sure, like when we do our back downs or our rep work, it's, I want to see an RP seven or less. 
I don't let them adjust it based off of how they feel because I want to know how they're actually like dealing with the program I'm giving them. So let's say week one or day four, we tend to do you know about 50 lifts total between the squat and the deadlift. They're very light. I want to see like no higher than an RPE seven, but if they put like an eight, eight and a half, I'm adjusting something the following week. And it just gives me this like good starting point of where they're at. And we can slowly build over time from there. Um, and I feel if I have them adjust it, I just don't have that same like guiding point. Like we can deal with that one day that's a little heavier and then, you know, just over time kind of figure out something um, that works. And I will say, cause I get this question a lot that, oh, don't you think some people can't handle heavy singles frequently? And yes, I definitely think that there's a difference between individuals and how they can handle heavy singles. And for us, because we always use variations. So I might throw comp squats in just to see what they look like, but on a lighter day, very, very rarely we'll ever let them max out on a comp squat. So most of our variations top out between 85 and 92%. Um, they are told on weeks one and two to leave five to 10 pounds on the bar. And week three, they can hit that five pound PR. And then if they want to hang their nuts out and go after something, they can. So it allows them, you know, basically one time a month to be a fucking maniac. Cause I do think that there are moments in time where you're tired, you're sore and it's like, let's see what you're fucking made of. Um, Cause it teaches you how to compete. And I think competing is a skill. And I think a lot of people get into this sport without necessarily having a background and having that skill to be competitive, not even just with other people, but with themselves. Um, but one of the things that we end up doing is, and I kind of like, this is like a ripoff from Shaco. So like those people who get more, and this even like the ones who get too amped up and don't leave the five to 10 pounds on the bar, this happens to them too. So let's say they get, they hit a true 10 on week one, the following week we do rep work. They get 80% for four doubles. Like Shaco found that that worked for technical efficiency. Well, let's get more technically efficient. Let's take a psychological break from being a maniac. And then let's see if we can hit a five pound PR the following week. Um, for the ones who start with me and they just like, for some people, man, they just get really fucking nervous to take a max single. So it just kind of like, they just kind of, they'll just have that like stop. Like their brain will just be like, Oh no, that was a, that was, I only have five to 10 pounds more. So that's something you can gradually build up over time. And you know, there are some people who do respond well from just being pushed a little bit. So like, that's not it at 10 pounds. So they'll add 10 pounds, but you know, when somebody says, I think I'm done. And then you're like, no, you're not Add 10 pounds. There's a recovery cost to that, that I think the coach needs to be aware of because we're not even talking about Matt. Like, even if it's still not maximal effort in their head, we are beyond maximal effort. They hit maximal effort and then they took one more. So there just seems to be a very large recovery cost for this. So it is something that I think the coach needs to take into consideration with heavy singles is like, there is a delicate balance of pushing somebody too much, them not pushing enough and having the right amount of them in there. Now I will say, and like, I mean, this is like one of those things I lay, I go all in on that the ones who are capable of hitting more heavy singles and training over the long term, staying healthy, making good training decisions, all that being understood, they're going to be the ones that win at the end. Cause I think if you have the ability to just handle more singles in training than another person, all things are equal, you're going to be better off. But obviously you're not just doing a single, like the program's the same and all, and all of that stuff. 
Um, but one of the things that I think I really lost sight of at one point was, and I steal this from Dave Tate. He said, training weaknesses in training are mental, physical, or technical. And if I want to build, so, you know, singles builds the mental piece for sure. Um, doing back downs after a heavy single, like 50, 50% of that weight for a set of eight absolutely fucking sucks. Even though the RPE ends up being really low, like that mental fatigue from that heavy single, the conditioning required, like there's just like this extra focus mental piece that has to get brought into that. And I think maybe even more than the physiological conditioning pieces, that mental toughness that's kind of built from doing that allows them to handle more work, more singles over time. Um, but I forget where I was, where I was going with this, but, oh, so, you know, I just, I got into this thing where I thought everything had to be heavy, right? But if we're working on technical efficiency, it gets back to what Shaco was talking about, right? Or what you guys were talking about in the beginning, more sets, less reps, more time. I don't ever. So our volume work, I honestly, outside of bench press, I can't remember the last time I programmed something over 70%. Like it's very light. Um, and so for me, if I want to build the intensity, I want the intensity in singles because I feel that's biggest carryover. I don't get as much physiological stress, it seems. So then I can spend more time on the technical stuff and get really solid technical reps that don't necessarily fatigue the lifter so much that I can't hit another single later on in the week or whatever. It's just kind of something that like over time, it just like made itself. And I'm, I'm a big fan of like going back and reading books that I read before with like the newfound perspectives of like the years of coaching and all that stuff. And I was flipping through my Kindle and I saw Charlie Francis's book. Um, and he was talking about his high, low approach to training. And I was like, Jesus, this makes so much sense. So I was using like lighter RPEs at the time, but they were still like eight ish, like not near failure, but they're moderate to heavy, let's say. And that's when I, I literally just made the change to, I was like, you know what, there's really nothing to be gained from even being that close to failure at this point. So let's like um, really pull it back. And I was wondering if you guys can maybe, uh, if you had something to add to that. I, uh, Kevin, I'd be interested to get, or, or just kind of point out maybe a different, uh, a slight difference. And I think we value a lot of, uh, of the same things, but maybe a, a slight, slightly different angle of which we uh, we come at it uh, in terms of when we're actually putting uh, the program on the, on the spreadsheet or, what, or whatever it is. Um, I think we both, all, all three of us, uh, uh, really value that peak intensity exposure. And like you said, Kevin, I think it's really important if, if somebody doesn't know how to go there, how to really, you know, what is it? What is a true RP ten? Like, is that all they got, or can they actually add ten pounds? You know, I, I think that's I think that's often undervalued. And, and I think uh, I think I speak for both Zach and I when I say that that is something that it is important to, uh, to, uh, to work on in lifters, but like, uh, like you mentioned, Kevin, that you don't really program anything under 70% for bench. I think that's, kind oh, no, 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 that's not true. Uh, I'll go over, I'll go over 70%. So on that second bench thing, it just seems people can handle, um, like we might do 80% for five sets of four and it's an RPE seven at times. Like as it gets, okay. built up. I, I won't go to 80% on the squats and the deadlifts on, the day four um okay. that tends to be 70 percent less but i actually use um a lot of lighter uh a lot of lighter bench stuff sometimes okay so would you 
would you say that the the majority of the the stimulus that's actually uh, providing the adaptation to increase the one rep max is from that from the peak intensity from the peak single exposure? I don't. I wouldn't say that the. I would say that's the most specific and has the most bang for the buck. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it works without the other stuff. Yeah. Like, so if I keep so I keep everything in for three weeks. Uh, so if I give somebody a variation and like. You know, even the first time you do a close grip bench, like stabilizing the weight's tough, right? So they might just add five pounds week two just from getting a little bit better at the exercise. Um, so we'll do back downs of the same thing that's uh, really light. And I don't necessarily think they add five pounds to that without those back downs. Like I think everything combined is what leads to that Um leads to that progress. Okay. But where, where I was going with that, and I'm not sure how much water this holds now, uh, since, since I, uh, I misunderstood what you originally said, but I think Zach and I might not go to quite the peak intensity and arousal that you encourage. Um, because I think we, I, I think we, uh, prioritize the accrual of muscle mass and the accrual of repetitions and exposures. Um, in total number of exposures as opposed to the peak. So I, I, I don't know if I'm making sense here, but I, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on that. So maybe that's a diff, a slight difference between uh, what we do and what you do is that we might, we might leave a little bit with that peak, with that peak exposure so that we can have more of that psychological fatigue uh, to spare for the rest of the work. Um, but, but with that said, I, I think I largely agree with what you're saying about, you know, teaching the athlete to go there. So it's, I like what you said about the peak intensity. I think every coach has like a different viewpoint on how high they want to take that peak. So for me, I'd rather have higher peaks and more quality with those higher peaks. So sometimes we have to take a week off of those higher peaks um, in order to have more higher peaks. Um, I think other coaches use very small peaks at times. And I think what it sounds like is you guys are somewhere in the middle. I think the difference comes into probably the volume and the frequency. So for us, they never get more than 24 lifts as a back down. And even that is, you know, we're talking 50% of that max effort. It's a very, very light load in that case. So it's usually probably averages out between like 12 and 16 reps, maybe 16 to 20, depending on the lifter uh, for that back down work. And then we don't squat again until day four. So on a typical program, somebody will come in, they'll hit that on day one for squats, right? Let's say it's, you know, they're doing a 65% for five sets, four sets of fours, back downs, the max effort, maybe some good mornings, back extensions, whatever, moving on. Then they do a similar thing for the bench press the following day, but usually it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday. So they're getting 48 hours before they bench. And let's say this is even a week that we're going to pull a max single on a deadlift they'll come in now on friday so they haven't done we'll call it lower body even though everything's kind of it's still an emphasis so now they have tuesday wednesday thursday and then friday so it's been four days since that last like lower body um peak intensity then they'll hit that and then the following day they usually come in and do some really light squats and deadlifts um so my guess is with the more moderate peaks, you guys are probably getting more volume and maybe even higher frequency in your programs. And I think, you know, it's just that, that general principle, right? As volume increases, intensity has to decrease and vice versa. That's my guess in my own. 
think it's a few things to add there. I think uh, one thing, Kevin, is I, I'm playing with is um, I think in a case by case scenario, so long as you can, you know, we've talked about some two individuals see a single at a nine, nine and a half RP on a paper, um, can have an extremely different stress response to that same thing, depending on how they're conditioned to that. I think there might be utility and this may be a place where me and Josh differ just based on our experience. But, um, I, I think there might be utility if you can like decondition someone like we, we were talking about this via DM you can decondition someone to view that single to nine nine and a half as something that's as outrageous as you know a lot of people in the powerlifting world would see that on a regular basis I think there could be utility in that um I I've often seen like you know no matter how close to failure and how heavy you go with volume work there's just technical issues that pop up at like those singles at a nine plus that you just you just don't see otherwise. And so the kind of the, the you know, the technical aspects of the volume work that I, I, I kind of, I, I think I see where, where, what you're talking about and kind of my experience too is, you know, this, this could be, I have not well read in the motor learning stuff at all, but this is just my experience is that, you know, the lower fatigue volume stuff, because it's not so close to failure and you have a little bit of room to give as far as like how you execute those reps, I feel like you can explore different kind of motor strategies for lack of a better term to, you know, if I, you know, if I push my knees a little bit forward on a squat, if I, you know, sit back into it a little bit more, you have more room to give to play with that. And then once you get to, you know, those peak exposures, you have, again, for lack of a better term, this bigger movement library to kind of explore when you get to these heavier loads. And in in my opinion, you know, technique at a single at a nine plus is a relatively unconscious process. You can think about cues all you want, but you're gonna get put in a position wherever, you know, the, the combination of your, um, you know, your neuromuscular system is going to allow you to go. So I think from a technique perspective, I, I think having the lower fatigue options is, is beneficial. And like you said, they kind of synergize with one another to allow for, you know, maybe more movement options when you go to those really, really heavy weights to kind of, um, you know, find, find what's most efficient for that person. That's just, that's just something in my experience I've kind of found to be effective, but yeah, that's, that's move, moving towards a little bit higher intensity on those singles and maybe a little bit lower intensity on the back down has something that I've, I've thought about because again, in our model, that is the most specific rep you're going to get from, from a force production standpoint. And if we can minimize the downsides from that, which I think is maybe where we slightly differ just, but I mean, but it sounds like even on the earlier weeks, you're kind of in line with this is that you don't want them going, you know, full snorting the ammonia going absolutely nuts on the earth, the earlier weeks in the block, um, which I think is pretty in line with what we do. So, yeah, I think, I think there's, there's, there's a lot of similarities in what we do. There's maybe slight stylistic differences to get there. Yeah. And even with those, um, even with like the heavier singles. So like, I don't let them huff a cap or sometimes I'll take away their music, like, mm. you know, Bulgarian weightlifting style sometimes like yeah. just decrease the amount of psychological arousal, but we don't really, like hitting true failure sometimes a variation like will catch up to you on week one you put a weight on there and you're like oh fuck like halfway up in the squat um the thing like even with technique right when you look at the motor learning like it does give you a lot of repetitions to practice different ways to see what works well and all that stuff but what it misses is that psychological arousal that comes with the heavier weights and that psychological arousal changes how you're going to move. And if you are thinking of cues and stuff, right, that's a beginner in motor learning in terms of skill, they're cognitive and deliberative and deliberate about their each movement that they do. So if that's what they're thinking of, 
then they're in trouble. And I think what the heavier weights, so like, even if, and like, this is completely in my experience, but even if you do an RPE nine, so like, I'm a big fan of, I'd rather them overshoot than undershoot in this case. Um, but if you're doing an RPE nine, sometimes it doesn't have, if they know they can double it, like it doesn't have that same consequence, mm -hmm. right? Like they don't have to learn to deal with their fucking thoughts as they're wrapping their wrists and they're approaching the bar. And I think what I've seen with like my lifters over time is in the beginning, you probably have to limit more exposure to the singles. So for me, it might be every other week with every lift, maybe bench press, you can, you can do a little bit more of, um, depending on what it is. But over time, the goal is just to build up that work capacity to be able to handle more. And what you see is you just, nobody seems to care about the heavy single or being scared of the weights. So earlier on when I was coaching on the lifters, you, you guys have seen people at meets where they're just like nervous and they were always so nervous. And now it's just like, everybody's just like fired up, having fun. Like, and, and this is the thing that really, like, I think pushed me over the edge to do the singles was talking to my lifters. And every time they're all saying, I've never had more fun competing than, than this. And it's like, I'm never going back. You know, like it just, they're able to think about other things. And like a few of them were like, Oh, I was able to feel my position change and I was able to make a quick adjustment. Like they're more aware of what's going on. And I think there's, I don't know if it's physiological. I, I mean, of course there's some, like, I don't think there's a big physiological difference between an RPE nine and an RPE 10. I mean, there's slight ones, don't get me wrong, but I think there's a big gap in psychological differences between getting that, closer to failure and knowing you can double it. Um, maybe you guys can kind of speak on that a little bit. Yeah, I think I, I largely agree. Um, it's, it's like sometimes in, I, I, I've experienced this, uh, you know, er, earlier in my lifting career is that when you do, when you aren't used to touching those heavy loads and, and it is time to test your one rep max, like you, you can just feel wiped out from that testing session. Like next, like the next week, 80% feels like a hundred percent. Literally my Shiko, uh, <laughs> tapering blocks. Yeah. And I think it's almost like a repeated bout effect to that psychological arousal. I think is kind of what, you, what you're getting at. And I, I largely agree with it. It's like, if, if you can, if you can get there more frequently, more practices there and experience less psychological fatigue and uh, the negative and the inability to uh, do hard training in, in the subsequent days, weeks or month, I think, I think that's something that's, a uh, you know, the repeated bout effect of psychological arousal is something that, that we should be focusing a good amount of our attention on. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm on board with that hundred percent. I think that's, something I think is a, is a huge skill. Like I, Mike T had a podcast once talking about training as a skill with Jacob Sipkin. I, I still, I come back to that one a lot. It's, 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 I think that's part of it is like being able to do the things that we think will make you successful, you know, and just decreasing the downsides of that, that, you know, may come with that on paper. But yeah, I think if you can decrease the, the cognitive arousal and the cognitive fatigue you get from, from that, and it's, and it's not just a single, like you said, Kevin, it's kind of that entire process, the setup, the chalking up your hands, the, 
the just like the the 10 seconds leading up to that rep when you're like thinking you're going to die like all that and you can kind of you know make that a, a, a normalized process and just something you kind of do way more frequently like and you just do it kind of like brushing your teeth i think that that can have a ton of benefits um that can benefit not only the performance on those top sets but in the broader context of the program if we can decrease the fatigue associated with those we can increase the you know the quality of everything else and then that can have kind of you know uh, exponential effects going forward i will say like as a caveat we talk a lot about the psychological aspects of training um what's today wednesday so tomorrow i did a podcast with vincinello and he it's basically like an hour and a half of him just talking about like the mindset of training. He actually thinks it's more important than the actual physical pieces of it. So like with those things, like I think what's important for a coach is to help with expectations. Right. I think for beginners, they're scared of failing. Like I don't necessarily think they're scared of getting hurt. I think they're just scared of missing a rep or, and it's just learning to help them understand that, you're going to miss reps. And, you know, I've, I've fallen a little bit different of a uh, side of the fence with this than, than most. I don't want them missing all the time, but I'm okay with the occasional miss rep because I do think you need to learn how to miss. And you need to learn that it's okay. And you need to learn that our errors are what really teach us the most. Like if, and like, I mean, Shaker was huge on just always having success in training, but I'm big on failing occasionally because those big errors really get your attention. Like, holy shit, what went wrong? And it it allows you as a lifter and as a coach to kind of help guide the human more than anything else in those cases. So I think once people stop being afraid to miss, don't get me wrong, there's a downside to this too because I've some lifters on my team that they're fucking psychopaths. They'll <laughs> hit something that, you know, they're literally go blind in one eye and they're putting 20 more pounds on the bar. Like, so there are like those... There's a give it. There's a certain give and take with this, um, but once they lose that fear and they understand that it's actually a positive if that happens and they can learn from it and do those things. Like for me, I think that was the biggest adjustment in handling the fatigue of those heavier singles was just letting them know it's it's okay if you miss. Like I'd rather you miss now. At nationals last year, we we had nine or ten people compete. We we completed like 92% of our attempts on the platform with people qualifying for the Arnold. And like, that's a really high percentage of makes. I'd rather you miss here so we can figure out what's wrong so that when we go to the platform, you're mentally and physically prepared to handle the travel, the weight cuts, all of those other things that are going to come with dealing with that stuff. Um, But I do as a coach, focus on it almost every single week with my lifters. I send out emails um, discussing like these aspects. And, you know, when you get nervous, like here are some tools to deal with that stuff. So we focus on, it's not just, I give them singles and throw them to the wolves. And I do think that is an important caveat uh, to mention. Um, Do you guys actually, uh, do you guys do any type of like, mental training stuff with your uh the physical pieces of it i i like i'll circle back to what we said about those second exposures is i like to push those to a really high rpe and i i guess i maybe that's something i should reconsider uh, of not encouraging missing like you said but perhaps making it a more acceptable thing um 
but probably a bit more than other coaches. I like to push those RPEs pretty high. I think, and, and I think if, if you can intelligently select a variation, if, if there is something that you're seeing, um, you know, when technique does uh, start to break down uh, at, a, at a given load, if you can, if you can uh, select a variation that somehow intelligently addresses that, <clears throat> I, th- I think, and you can push that to a high RPE and limit the load, um, perhaps even by doing a double or a triple at an RP 10. I th- I've seen that be a huge confidence builder to say, um, okay, I know that, you know, that second rep of this set was really hard, but I can grind through this third one. I, I think, I think it's more of a, a programming strategy thing. Um, I'm not sure if Zach does anything different, but, but that's kind of how I go about it is, you know, if, if you don't want to go to, you know, that single at a nine or a 10 on the competition movement, I think you can do it in a, in a self-limiting variation and get a big, a, a, a big return on your investment at a lower fatigue cost, allowing, allowing yourself to have more uh, a recovery capacity for, for the rest of the work to accumulate the practice necessary. Yeah, I'm, I'm along a lot of the same lines. I think, Kevin, one thing you mentioned that I I totally align with is, like, m- maybe for two different reasons, but, like, you know, like Josh said, doing pretty pretty high-intensity stuff on, on, on a variant. I just find, especially for, like, um, you know, a more typical, like, powerlifter that maybe comes from, like, a hyper-specific background, um, it just relieves so much pressure to perform on a day that it's not your comp squad, it's not your comp deadlift, it's not your comp bench. It's already limited. So, like, you know, it's that day it's about execution and it's about getting to the perceived effort that we want. So it's, it just becomes so much less of this mind game where people are, you know, you know oh, man, I'm not doing well today, that kind of thing. And so you get the negative, uh, you know, expectancy effects of that. And then maybe they, they're just in general kind of scared to push to that RPE. So you have like that on top of it. So I think, having a you know a, a variant and throughout the week at some point where you push to a pretty higher v a relieves the pressure of like having to perform in a certain way and it's more about that process of getting to that effort it's just like it's just so much less um you know it's it's, it's just so much less of a uh, pressured process I, I feel like than than doing that on a competition lift so you take that experience of pushing to those types of efforts and then eventually as you get more and more experience with doing so you can transfer that to the competition lift and so now they have a greater toolkit to attack those days where again it's just it's so much less of this this big thing that they have to do and it's just kind of you know just another day where i'm working up to a single at a pretty high rb and they're and they're just so much more used to it it's just so much less of a tax i feel like yeah i think if you can get to the point where it's 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 almost business as usual yeah. um yeah where that, okay i'm gonna touch i'm gonna touch a low velocity repetition that's constrained by load um and this is normal for me. I think that's kind of the place we, we like to hang out. I think, yeah, real quick, sorry. Um, I, I, I think, um, oh, shoot, that was my train of thought again. <laughs> Go ahead, Kevin, I might come back to me. There's enough specificity if I'm going to do a meaty squat with somebody, right? So heels right outside the, uh, right outside the shoulders or a wide stand squat. Those absolute loads are very close to their regular, what we would call their palm squat. So I actually tell all my lifters, we don't have comp squats until we have a comp because you don't know where you're going to be strongest. Um, but if I move them just a little bit, like I got to be careful because if week one, 
if they hit something that's really close to a best all-time lift, I'm kind of on borrowed time. So I had one lifter, and I kind of wanted to see how it would pan out. So for her, she... I feel she just doesn't really display her true strength because psychologically she kind of holds herself back. So she had squatted 336 at a meet in February. And all of a sudden, like we were doing a, a, the technical issues, you know, knees caving in probably more so because of nerves than an actual weakness. So one of the things that I like about like box squats is it does build up those joint angles and stuff. Don't get me wrong. Like of the hips and stuff just makes you be in the places that suck in that squat just a little bit longer. So you end up developing a little bit more comfort. So all of a sudden she's in the three fifties and then she hit three sixty five. And then the following week I was like, let's just repeat this and let's see what happens. And like, she was able to repeat it. It was fine. But it's like one of those things that, you know, all of a sudden like her glutes starting to bother her, like with those higher absolute loads, you just, and it's been like gradual. It's probably less sustainable what you would even think you may offer to the way with it performance tends to fluctuate way more um with higher absolute loads than it does with that variations between that 85 and 92 percent range like typically lifters can just kind of hit those weights and they don't really care if they miss a variation or it's not a pr in a variation like you were saying um but it's interesting you brought up the comp lifts because so one of the things, and like, this is what COVID is really like screwing with me now is I need to like figure out a different peaking strategy because usually we would like hit a heavier single, which I might do something like RP eight to nine for a single. And we'll just kind of plan it to chip away or like, I have enough, I see enough heavier exposures. Like once they're hitting 95 to 97% on all variations, I know we got two to 5% increases there. Like there's heuristics I could develop there. Um, but yeah, you, I think 95 plus like absolute loads, unless their one rep max has changed, I think is a slippery slope um, with taking heavy singles. Not that they don't have their place occasionally, but you do have to be pretty careful. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things too, like psychologically, so if people have a hard time getting up into that 85 plus percent range because they get really nervous, bands and chains. They don't even know what the fucking weight is on the bar. <laughs> so like in a lot of, a lot of cases you can use like 75% bar weight, 70%, nothing that's like deloading it too much in the hole, but they're still straining. And like, I get it. Tension's not straight weight and all of that stuff. But at the end of the day, weight is weight. And then learning how to push that weight, lock out that weight. Um, and most of these people, they're beginners, right? Like you don't see higher level lifters being scared of those heavier weights. Um, of course, there's like technique things you have to take into consideration because the bands do ground you a little bit. And like, if their walkout's really shitty, it's going to fucking throw them around. But like, there's ways that you can kind of like manipulate those loads too, utilizing accommodating resistance to. And I actually found, I don't know if you guys use bands and chains much, but I actually found that the bands and chains. So, like, what I'll do with the lifter who just squatted 365, should get an entire wave of just like pretty heavy band tension because it just deloads through the. Um, tougher biomechanical positions and it just it allows them to recover while still training hard. Um, I don't know if you guys use any of that stuff though. 
Fans and chains are one thing that I like. Me and Josh talked about this a few times. Like, from a theoretical perspective, again, this is from more of a muscle growth kind of centric approach that we kind of take. It makes so much sense from like a muscle growth perspective to match the resistance and the strength curve of the exercise. But the research, for whatever reason, just doesn't pan out. I know Josh is more familiar with that than me, but I, I just think uh, I'm definitely wanted to try some bands and chains. My setup currently doesn't doesn't allow me to. I don't have anything, but I, I think it's I think it's an interesting concept. I I, I don't have much experience with it i've uh i've programmed some band stuff before um for for varying reasons but um I, yeah i don't have a ton of experience with it but i do find the concept interesting um josh i don't know if you have anything to add on that I, I, again i don't have much much to add there but i, I find it interesting it's definitely something i want to play around with more yeah i i actually somebody had asked me this question recently um uh, about accommodating resistance and what well, like zach alluded to in the research you don't really see a a benefit in terms of muscle growth by uh, matching the resistance curve to the strength curve. But I think uh, going kind of circling back to the, the overarching theme of our article about maximizing the, the force production, um, something that we like to emphasize is maximal concentric intent at the given load. Um, so if you're lifting 80% of a 1RM, how do, you, how do you maximize the force at that given load? You accelerate it as fast as possible, right? The mass is held constant. If, if you can, if you, you have control over the, the acceleration of the barbell, if you accelerate it as fast as possible, that's going to maximize the force production. So, so that, so, and then somebody asked me around a similar time, uh, when I was talking about that maximal intended velocity concept, um, about accommodating resistance. And, and it got me thinking maybe the bands and the chains kind of can emphasize that a little bit and have adaptations in and of itself. Um, I, I, I don't know if my thoughts are, or, uh, well formulated on this, but I'm not sure if you have any thoughts about what those implements can do from a psychological or neurological perspective in terms of uh, concentric intent and any benefits that might have. So with the, uh, this is literally why I use them. And um, with the velocity stuff, it's really important, right? So you need to understand what your goal of the bands and chains are going to be. We use bands more than we use chains. Um, I actually found chains to work better on the bench press. I don't know why the pause on the chest that like dissipates some of that like eccentric energy i'm not sure um and also just like it requires i think just more brute strength like it's more like straight weight um but you have that over speed eccentric right so like that bend is pulling the bar down faster than gravity so you need to control the eccentric more uh so i think what it does is it teaches the lifter how to go down a little bit faster how to be obviously what goes down faster is coming up faster and how to keep pushing through the weight. So one of the things that I really messed up with, with bands in the beginning was one, not knowing what I really wanted. So from a velocity standpoint, do I want them moving quick here? Or do I want that, um, like a circa max type of looking squat? Do I want them straining through that load? Or do I want them just, you know, the compensatory acceleration stuff? Do I want them just snapping every rep? And I think it's really important to find the tension that matches the velocity in which you're looking for because each has its place and we use them in both places. Um, I think the deadlift, you could use it all the time because it's the one lift you really do have to accelerate all the way through no matter what. I think there's some benefits to that, even just like really light band tension. Um, but I was afraid to use too much band tension because I didn't want to deload the, 
bottom portion of the squat too much. But like, if you look at training from like a holistic standpoint, you just got to make sure you're getting enough work there to maintain it. Right. And like we're squatting on other days and stuff. So it's not like it just goes away from three weeks, but I found that I needed to use more band tension than what I thought I needed to use in order to get the results. So I have a 72 kilo lifter who squats 370. Um, when she squats, she's got a very vertical torso, knees drive forward pretty hard. Um, and I'm not saying like any of these positions are incorrect. But what this tells me is she's relying a lot on her quads and her upper back, but that low back and the hips just really aren't supporting a lot of weight. And to me, that's something that if we work on, being better at those angles and developing some speed out of, out of the hole from those angles that we can squat a lot more weight. Um, there's just, I think there's more room for error. There's more muscles involved. I'm like, I'm one of those two that I kind of take what the old people said, try to figure out why it works. And sometimes I'm just like, eh, if they all kind of said that I kind of hold on to it. Um, and there's no problem, I think, with either way of looking at it. So I have, like, less technical deviations that I kind of want to see, but I don't discourage them. It just kind of tells me stuff. So we've been doing a ton of, like, heavier box squats with bands, like, lots of band tension. And, like, her squat is – and she had told me, she's like, I've never felt more powerful out of the hole and more stable. So she's sitting back a lot more, so the shin angle is a lot different. And, I mean, she hit – I think 325 for like a set of four or five at like a pretty light RPE on our day four. So fatigue's pretty high by the end of the week and she was doing that and it was pretty easy. Um, so it's like one of those things we're seeing the progress that we want to see even with the change of angles. But I don't think I would have been able to do that with her a year and a half ago. Cause like I was using, so with her, we're using about 110 to upwards of maybe 180 pounds of band tension at certain times. Um, she is taller, like five, nine before I was probably using like 40 pounds. Like it just wasn't enough. So you need enough. And I'll tell you, if you guys have never squatted with a decent amount of band tension, you get halfway up and it takes your fucking arrow. Like it just hits you differently. Like you get used to that, like pop out of the hole, coast to the top, pop out of the hole, coast to the top. And it does like, so again, to your point, Josh, like it does really drive that concentric acceleration. Um, but if you're looking for them to be faster, you probably have to use lighter weights, like true, like West side dynamic effort stuff. Um, but if you're looking to develop that capacity to like really drive through strength, through heavier weights, it also will punish the shit out of a bad walkout um, with that much band tension because of the way that it's pulling you. So if you're not braced and ready to handle it and like, we'll, we'll change the angles of the bands and stuff sometimes too. But it was one of those things that like, I needed to understand what I truly wanted out of the exercise, what I was looking for and there's a right amount of band tension and i never use less than 80 pounds but most of my female squat 300 plus um and i think if i had to use less band tension than that i would just use 40 pounds of chain as opposed to the bands themselves if that makes sense mm -hmm. yeah play around with that it's pretty interesting i think the, i think the uh the cue to cue to accelerate at maximum is something i think is like you know, fits into our model pretty well. So I, I, I just don't have much experience with this. So I definitely something I have to play around with. Something that came to mind, Kevin, uh, when you were describing kind of the way you set it up, um, I, I, and, and just to clarify what I was talking about, it wouldn't necessarily be, uh, uh, you know, 
the light work, this the the true speed work, it's more the the maximal possible yeah. velocity at a given load is kind of where I'm coming from. But I guess my thought of where it might have an application is, is like we were talking about, there's something about touching those peak intensities and it just being hard, right? We're, tra- we're, we're training how to train hard more, right. in a way. And, and a, pen, a potential benefit of the accommodating resistance, depending on how you set it up, is uh, that the peak tension, so more or less the sticking point will be at a shorter muscle length. Um, and just as a general heuristic of the peak, uh, f- uh, on the muscular level, the muscle damage will be less uh, if the peak tension is at a shorter muscle length as opposed to out of the hole where the, where the muscles are more lengthened. So that might be a potential uh, use case for that in which you can, you know, train how to train hard. You can get that high effort exposure, that high percentage of the given variant, uh, the percentage of 1RM of that given variant, um, but potentially minimize any any muscle damage from the repetition i'm not sure how much that matters but just a thought i had one question i have kevin right off what josh just said do you find that one of the variant like the one of the variants that you include within the week if you're using band stuff needs to be without bands to um uh, maintain familiarity of the, the like the strength curve on a comp squat it doesn't necessarily have to be a comp squat but like if that if that makes sense i'm just curious again i don't have much experience like do you find that if you do everything with bands or everything with chains when they go back to um like a comp squat are they equally kind of like oh crap what what is this kind of thing is like like you said to when they originally put the bands on oh yeah no 100 percent. i think there's that's another thing too that there is a right amount of time to add them in and i got like this was with my own training so i was like messing around with like much heavier band tension and i was just seeing like really good success on my comp squat and i was getting close to a competition and i was like you know a few of my buddies uh i think one of them was jeremy hartman he's like dude you're getting close to a meet you might want to drop that band tension because you're going to be so used to it, like walking out the, the bigger weights and like, it does, it grounds you differently. Like, I don't know if that explains it well, but like with the band pulling the bar down on your back and in that straight line, it almost like forces the bar path that you're looking for. Um, but yeah, so I don't, I might do a wave where we do all bands. If like, that's what I'm in. Like I have, I have a lifter now and like everything that I've done, I just, even if I'm using like, 60%, 50% even. She's just not getting faster. I'm using like straight up power training, like 35% bar weight, light bands, move this shit fast just to see how it's gonna go on day four. Um, but we're using bands on box squat with bands, just like being aggressive off the box, driving through the hips, like those types of things. But we're so far away from a competition, I really don't care about the lack of familiarity with the lifts. I think sometimes, So from a dynamic systems theory perspective, right, we have these like attractor wells. And if you practice something long enough, right, and you do it the same way all the time. So let's say for this lifter, pretty forward shin travel, uh, move slow, like that's just her typical squat. Let's say that's that attractor well. And it's so deep that everything that I've tried to make her faster, sit back more, do those things, we still end up in that same spot. Right. And we kind of get stuck with the loads. Like it's been about a year. We haven't really seen progress in the, in the squat. Now, mind you, for the first few years, you know, she had great progress, dropped a weight class, qualified for nationals. So some, there are some other variables there, 
and then like this whole thing hit. But we're kind of at a point where I'm looking at it. I'm like, I need to pump start training a little bit, uh, a little bit differently. So one of the things that I actually want to do is I want to decrease the familiarity with the normal speed of her squat. So hopefully if I take it out, so like in the literature, they were talking about like a backhand tennis stroke that they wanted to fix and to remove it from actual training, they would make the person hold a tennis ball so that then they can't do a two-handed backstroke. It just removes and you remove it for a period of time. It weakens that attractor state so that that attractor well ends up not being so deep. And eventually we can hopefully create a deeper one somewhere else that she just kind of like goes to. So I think there's some benefits to losing familiarity with stuff at times, but you better be far away from a competition and you better 100% um, explain the expectations of your, for your lifter to be like, Hey, you might see a step back when we do this, but this is why those couple of things are uh, really important. So I think everything has a time and a place. It just kind of depends on what the goal is. Um, so like for me, if I wanted to make her faster and I'm not using bands on everything, I'm not sure if I would have enough exposures from that one day with bands that over that fixes, I don't know if fixes the right word, but that like pushes training in the right direction. If I'm keeping half of the training similar, if that makes sense. So I don't know, man, I think, Dude, to be honest, like sometimes we just got to admit we don't know what the fuck we're doing and we're just throwing darts at a, throwing darts at a dartboard you know? <laughs> and just seeing if it works. Like we can make up all these logical reasons and maybe explain them with good detail and good science and all that stuff. But sometimes at the end of the day, we just don't fucking know. And that's why I'm losing my fucking hair. Yeah, I, th I think that humility, the humility is really important. Um, like Ke Kevin, I know you, you emphasize, like you talk about how, you know, somebody's training system is a product of their own thought process. I'm pretty sure that's something I heard you say, um, in some, one of your writings or something. I, I think that's really important. It's like, if, if I were to implement your training system, it wouldn't work the way that it, you, I wouldn't see the results that you see for your athletes because it's a product of your thought process. Right. I think that's important um, to have that humility of, you know, th there's some intuition at play um, and we're all just kind of making our best guesses. And uh, I learned that the hard way when I was trying to mimic what Shaka was doing. And I was like, why is everybody not national champions <laughs> at this point? You know, I think that it's, it's true, right? Like if the coach is guiding the process, like, and there's something to it too. It's like, if you're trying to mimic what somebody else is doing, like they've, they've bought into you, right. And they want what you have to offer. So you need, you know, there's some trust there. And like, I think there's some fun in like, you know, my lifters, dude, I had this one lifter. Cause I was like, I want to know how mental fatigue affects performance. So I was like, this kid's name is Daniel. I was like, dude, in between every set, nobody's allowed to hype you up. They can only say negative things to you. And so like, you know, so we can have some fun with him, but he was doing a five minute typing test. So we kept track of words per minute and then he'd go take a single and he'd work up to a heavy single. And we did this over a period of time. We 
removed <laughs> the typing test, this kid ended up with the meat of his fucking life. Like he put like 70 pounds on his squat. And I think it was just like, it kind of gets back to what you were saying, Josh, you just get this like a repetition of like, you're just like, fuck this sucks, but I'm going to do it. And like, I trust what's going on. And I think a lot of that is just buy-in and trust and all of that stuff too. It's not just, Oh, well, we induced mental fatigue. We took it out. And so that, no, it's, he fully trusted in me to do something that nobody else has done. He believed it would work. Like that's probably at the end of the day, the, the, um, the biggest result of that. And to be honest, it was a lot of fun for me too. Um, so I want to be respectful of your time kind of since we've been doing this for 90 minutes. Um, you guys put out a lot of good stuff. So let everybody know where they can find it. Zach, you want to you wanna sure. tell people where to find you? Yeah, I didn't know if you were going to cut me off again. So, yeah. I'll I go. mean, Zach, Zach does have more followers. I'm just... Ooh. Ooh. Uh, but, yeah, so uh, you can find our website at data-drivenstrength.com. Uh, get, you know, general information about our coaching and uh, backgrounds on us and stuff. And then on Instagram is probably where we're most active. I'm Zach.data-driven-strength, and Josh is Josh.data-driven-strength. So find us there. Come ask questions discuss all that good stuff but yeah uh and, good to, and it, good to talk yeah uh and if you're interested in the, the article that we we started off discussing that's at uh myojournal.com uh, or you could look up brian minor on instagram and and find his stuff there um and yeah if if, if you do read through it we'd 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 be happy if you did and if, if you have any feedback or thoughts feel free to shoot us a dm uh and, and poke some holes in the argument because that that'll only help us all better uh better under, understand this stuff yeah real quick we'd be remiss not to talk about brian pretty highly like brian gave us an awesome opportunity to get that you know article on a bigger platform than we have to get it to more people and be able to see it and then he also offered a ton of good feedback in the peer review process and has um you know contributed a lot to you know the final touches on the way we view this thing and um yeah brian brian's an awesome guy and i, I think it'd be a disservice not to mention uh, how awesome what duty is too brian is a very nice dude me and him have argued for like a year over the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but in a very uh professional man oh yeah he's a good guy um absolutely uh, and he does put out some good stuff too uh guys oh Alyssa, if you can uh this is so Alyssa produces this show. I'm going to leave her a note in the show. So everybody listening will hear it too. But if you can link that article into the show notes, that'd be great. Uh, guys, you can follow me on Instagram. It's KWKNRT and Precision Powerlifting Systems. Stay strong, Boston. Awesome.